Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ. And we ask that you would help us to grasp more, not just with our minds, but every part of our being, what it means for Christ to come. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. As we uh, concluded the New Testament reading and said, thanks be to God, I couldn't help but I think I heard John shout louder than anyone, uh, thanks be to God for the completion of that translation that uh, he was right in the middle of, he and Sylvia doing that and those who helped them, and what great joy to hear it read after all the years of praying for them and their work and support, and it's exciting to hear that, and thanks be to God. You you don't have to live very long before, if you think about it, it strikes you how important places are to us. Places are important to us. We make treks and journeys, we stand in long lines, we spend a fair amount of money Because places are important to us. Sometimes places are important because of their beauty and the the awe that they inspire in us. Taj Mahal, the Great Wall, Palace at Versailles. Sometimes places are important because of what they represent. Buckingham Palace, the White House, the Lincoln Memorial... Boston Harbor, Tiananmen Square. Sometimes places are important because they remind us of something very personal. That house where we spent so much of our childhood. School you attended. That that field or stadium where you competed. That recital hall where you sang or played. That, that factory where you got your first job and that first real paycheck. <clears throat> that hospital where your children were born. Or maybe that highway where your children were born if they came a little earlier than you anticipated. Or that place where you stood and spoke probably the two most profound English words of relationship. I do. Places are important to us. And sometimes people want to tell us and sometimes we feel ourselves that all this importance we place on places is futile and kind of silly. I mean, it's just a building, it's just a house, just a playground. I mean, things that are eventually going to be torn down or paved over or changed in some form. And it seems like an awful lot of fuss for something so temporary. But it's not. It's because places speak to us and stir our memories, inspire our thoughts and, and challenge our thinking that we spend so much time and money and energy 
going back to them and remembering them and engaging with them again. Places are important to us. And I am discovering that not only are places important to us, they're important to God. When God rescues his people from Egyptian slavery and he begins the process of setting them up as a nation, he commands Moses to construct a place so that his people can come together and worship him. But it's actually more than that. It's, a, it's actually a place, God says, where he's going to come and dwell among them in all of his glory. In Exodus 25, God says to Moses and the people, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among you. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I show you and I will dwell among the Israelites and I'll be their God and they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. As this book of Exodus comes to a conclusion, the writer says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled that place. And the scriptures speak often of God dwelling in places. Psalmist says, I love the house where you live, O Lord. Place where your glory dwells. Praise be to the Lord from Zion to him who dwells in Jerusalem. Isaiah speaks of the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. And Jesus speaks about the one who dwells in the temple. Zephaniah prophesies that when the Messiah comes, he will restore Israel to relationship with God. And the sign of that restoration, God says at that time, I will gather you home. The scriptures paint a picture of God who though incapable of being domesticated or limited by any human endeavor, is at the same time enamored with time and space and chooses to enter it and to inhabit it. Paul speaks of God's most profound presence of time and space. In the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians, Paul is writing to an audience It's wrestling with what it means for God to be in this world with the invisible, immortal, uncontainable God limiting himself in human flesh. Paul begins talking about Christ in probably what is a hymn of the early church and says that God, Christ has supremacy over all things, that all things were created by him. And all of this is true Because God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And through Christ to reconcile to himself all things. The incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh and bone. God the Son limited himself in the confines of a human body to reconcile, save, redeem this broken, sinful world. Paul says, if you, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. 
In this flesh and blood human being, God has made his habitation. In him, all of God's fullness dwells. Advent is a time of hopeful anticipation. A time when we believe that God is going to act in time and space in a very special way. And our buildings and and our other human structures are signs of hope that God will continue to dwell and continue to inhabit the places that his people set aside for him and that these places will help prepare us for what he wants to do in us and for us. Today we celebrate the blessing of this building in which we gather for worship. 75 years of people coming to this building and worshiping God together. When you stop and think about it, it's just a building. It's just bricks and mortar and stone. It's just, it's just wood and nails, it's just plaster. It's just a building, something made by, by human hands. It's just a building. And I know that there are precautions because we, have, we so easily fall into, into the temptation. And we're so easily enamored to, with places of worship that we can begin to worship the places where God dwells instead of the God who dwells in those places. Israelites struggle with that. Christians through centuries have struggled with that. We continue to struggle with that. Nevertheless, God says, I come and I dwell in these places. I suspect that our struggle with the physicality of our experience with God is rooted in the mindset that is so often, is so often perpetrated in the church that if you're really spiritual, you don't care much about physical things. If you're really a spiritual person, then the, the physical things are fine, but they're all a means to an end. There, there's not really any value to them. But that's not a sign of spirituality. It's actually a sign of our deep-seated connectedness to the heresies of dualism and Gnosticism. These similar heresies have at least one thing in common, a deep-seated mistrust of creation and matter and things and bodies. They believe that the stuff of the world is tainted or at best irrelevant to our spiritual journey. But the historic church has denied these heresies as just that, heresies. And with these denials, the heart of their theology. We believe that things created, things created by God, things created by human beings are good, not evil. We believe that the spirit is good, but we believe also that matter is good. Now, is matter flawed and corrupted? Certainly. But God made all things good, and therefore, even the flawed created things are good. God certainly seems to feel that way about them. Because God has decided the most profound way to reach us and to communicate his love to us is through his work in creation. These things that provide handles for us to know God and to approach God, not the least of which is Christ. So C.S. Lewis once said, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. 
God never meant for human beings to be purely spiritual creatures. That's why he creates material things like bread and wine to put the new life of Christ into us. And we may think that that's rather crude and unspiritual, but God doesn't think that. God likes matter. He invented it. I look at this building and I am so grateful for the gift of matter. I'm grateful for the architecture, for the thoughtfulness of its design. I'm grateful for the wood. I'm grateful for the windows. I realize that 75 years ago, our nation was in the throes of severe depression. And every time I I think of that, I am continually amazed at how much the people of this congregation were willing to sacrifice in order to, to build this structure for them to worship and for us to worship. Now, not everybody was in agreement about how this building was to be constructed. There were some vocal opponents that, that thought that the, the windows and even the size of the building was extravagant and perhaps even unholy. And they believed that if the money was going to be spent on something, it ought to be spent on something more important, like evangelism and missions. I'm grateful that the congregation decided to build what they did and the way they built it. And it's not because they or we are opposed to evangelism and missions, but so that it would inspire us in worship. Now, can you worship in, in a building that's not like this? Of course you can. You can be as, as inspired to worship God in a, in a place that has four poles and a, a thatched roof over the top of it. But I'm grateful that as they debated what to build, they had faith to step out and build something like this. And I don't think it's lessened our commitment to evangelism and missions. Hopefully, as we're inspired in worship, it sends us forth to be even more concerned about the people of our world. The God who inhabits time and space and promises to dwell in these places with his people does so because we are needy and burdened and aching. And we need his touch on our lives. You see glimpses of this many times in the Old Testament. We see the full revelation of this in the coming of Christ as Paul writes about Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells. And Christ comes and it changes everything about our understanding of God, not because God has changed, but because our perspective about God is new. It's like spending all of your life sitting in the passenger seat of the car and riding everywhere you go in the passenger seat and then one day getting your license and now driving, being behind the wheel. It's the same road, same car, same weather conditions, same stop signs, but it's not the same. A whole new perspective on what it means to drive. 
So Jesus tells his followers, I've come to reveal to you the Father. And I've come to reveal to you the Father who wants to give you abundant life and who comes to seek and to save the lost and to preach good news and to proclaim freedom and to release the oppressed and to tell us about the Lord's favor. It's this new perspective that John describes in the the prologue of his gospel when he writes, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who's at the Father's side has made him known. He is present with us, Emmanuel. And it's one of the most mind-boggling truths that you and I will ever encounter or ponder that the immortal, invisible God who is too great to be contained in anything created inhabits time and space in human flesh in order to save us from our sins and to give us life, to make us holy like himself and to draw us into intimacy with him. The God who inhabits time and space does this so that we may be known by him and so that we may know him. Why does God do all of this? Because he loves us. Because he wants a relationship with us because he likes us. And we are his beloved children. And he is willing to do anything so that we can understand and accept this truth. And this God who inhabits our places tells us that in the coming of Christ, it's not just about us. It's about the whole world. It's for all people in all places at all times. The prophet Zechariah declares, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I'm coming and I will live among you. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and many nations will become my people and I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, to the whole world. For God who loves us reveals himself to us by stepping into time and space. And there is no other Religion in the world that understands God like that. There's an article in the Olean Times Herald this week. You may have seen it. I think it was Friday. And it described a, a speech at St. Bonaventure. It was given by an Olean native, John Godfrey, who in the past eight or ten years has devoted himself to becoming a Zen Buddhist monk. You can, you can sense the, the humility in this young man, even as I was reading this article, it was, it was describing his speech and what he had to say. And, and, and you can see that, and he's, so, he's, he's very serious about his belief system and about what he has devoted his life to. But I was struck by some things that he said. He began by saying, truth cannot be spoken. And then he apologized to the audience and said, I'm sorry for speaking. If I came here with the intention of showing you the truth, of telling you the truth, I would just stand here and say nothing at all. But since you won't let me not talk, I'm forced to tell you lies. Because it's a long-held principle in East Asian traditions that the truth cannot be spoken. 
I read that. And I was immediately reminded of John's words about Jesus, who said, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God who is truth does not leave us in silence. He comes into this world of time and space and he inhabits it so that we might know truth. So we might know life. I I wanted to commemorate this anniversary of our building today for a couple of reasons. I want us to walk into this building each week and be reminded of all the people who've gone before us. Their sacrifices, their godly lives, their, their willingness to make decisions full of courage and faith in a difficult time. And even more importantly, I, I want us to walk into this building and be reminded of all that God has done for the people who've worshipped here, including us. I want us to look at the brick and the mortar and the walls and the windows and to remember all that God has done in the lives of the people that have come into this space and have worshipped God. And to remember that our God who is uncontainable, our God who is immortal, our God who is invisible, our God who who is omniscient and almighty has chosen to step into time and space into this world and inhabit time and space to redeem us. So that every time we look at these two windows, we're reminded of Christ who has come for you and for me. My prayer that as we come and worship, whether it's here or somewhere else, we'll continue to open our lives to Christ. Because the God who steps into time and space, in places and in his Son, wants to inhabit our lives too. Heavenly Father, It is mind-boggling to consider that you, you who are beyond creation, steps into time and space, inhabiting it so that your children would know you. Father, impress upon us that truth, even this day. Amen.